am here this afternoon with Dr. Suzanne McCormick, who is an oral surgeon in San Diego, California in the United States and also teaches at UCLA. We are talking about the opioid crisis. And uh, Dr. McCormick, we had some, a really interesting discussion before this podcast about uh, some of the research that you've done and a presentation that you're making at the ICOMS conference this year. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the research you've done and some of the really, um, I think, somewhat surprising and startling um, just, you know, trails that, that it has led you to? Absolutely, Deborah. I mean, I really appreciate this opportunity to be here today and share with you a little bit of understanding about the opioid crisis. I, I know this is going out to a worldwide audience, and a lot of times people look at the United States and say, oh, well, you know, this is a problem only here in the United States, but it's starting to get traction in countries in Europe, in Canada, uh, Mexico, Australia, and it's, it's an interesting problem and an interesting kind of perfect storm that happened where um, in uh, the late 1990s, 1996, a, uh, a drug company came out with a very powerful and potent form of, of codeine, um, the um, Oxycontin, and they marketed it as being safe and non-addictive. And the challenge with that is that it was originally um, designed to be given to patients that had cancer. Yet soon it was marketed um, strongly by the drug company itself, going out and, and funding high prescribers and telling them to switch to the Oxycontin because they thought it was safe. And the ironic thing is, is that the non-narcotic addictive portion came from the fact that um, a um, surgeon um, did a, a study and found that 10 of his patients did not get addicted and wrote only a letter to the editor, not even a study, not some sort of clinical trial, but merely a letter to the editor became the evidence of the fact that it wasn't addictive. That's just fascinating. And then um, you mentioned also that the, the Joint Commission had come out with their pain management protocol at the same time, and that sort of intersected um, much of this too. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. It was in um, 2001 that the Joint Commission came out with the concept that pain was considered to be the fifth vital sign. So in addition to looking at blood pressure and heart rate and temperature and all the different vital signs that we normally check, we had to add in a fifth vital sign, which was pain management. And I remember one day, all of a sudden, I was in um, the post-anesthesia recovery room and and I was given a form to fill out for my patient, whereby I, I went from just giving them normal post-operative pain medication to having put them on a pain pump and sending them home with all kinds of medication. So it was this combination of us required to be much more proactive with pain as well as the um, introduction as well as heavy marketing of the Oxycontin that you start to see the statistics and the number of doses of Oxycontin and, and other problems kind of following soon thereafter. Unbelievable, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So um, you had also looked at sort of the, uh, the geography. Well, it, it, you know, let's talk about a couple of things. The geography that you sort of followed and what that told you about maybe um, DNA 
and then um, what you have learned about um, patient's ability to metabolize, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you, the United States is kind of an interesting country, because let's face it, we're kind of a young country, having you know only a history of about 200 years, and, and a lot of people coming from all over the world to, to settle in the United States. And we always think of it as kind of being a, a homogeneous kind of equal distribution, but it turned out that there's a lot of people who settled in certain regions based upon the trade and job that they could get. So um, a lot of people came from Ireland and Germany um, to work in the coal fields in West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, which is where a lot of the drug problem is. And that marries with some of the genetic testing that we've done, where we found that a large percentage of population have altered gene expression for both the metabolism of opioids as well as the potential for addictive potential. And what I mean here is the fact that because codeine and hydrocodone or whatever form in the pills that you get is a prodrug, meaning that the body has to metabolize it into codeine, but if you don't have the genetic capability to make the enzymes that converts it to codeine, codeine into morphine, then you may only get 50% of the normal activation of the medication. Normally you activate about 10% of the pill that you take. But if you only activate 5%, you're not gonna get the pain relief, but you may get the side effects. Similarly, if you have an addictive potential, and again, what we did is a study looking at the five genes associated with addictive potential as well as codeine metabolism. And we found that only 35 or to 40% had normal gene expression and normal metabolism for codeine. And conversely, only 65% of the population had normal response to dopamine. And dopamine is what gives you the happiness and the good feeling that you get with the pain medication, as well as the mu receptor. Um, again, only one third of the population got that positive effect. So it's the combination of having poor metabolism as well as poor expression of the dopamine and mu receptors that shows us that about 25% um, of the population has problems with both. So that means that one in every four people in the people that we studied had a problem with both the metabolism of codeine as well as an addictive potential. And it's the the kind of um, perfect storm of a drug company pushing their drug, the unintended consequence of um, advising that pain is a, the new um, marker and indicator of a vital sign that we need to work on, that then led to this increase of all of a sudden having this problem. That's, that's incredible, and I think probably um, a very, very little-known uh, set of circumstances that, that most people wouldn't um, necessarily correlate together. A question that I have is, so what does someone do? How do, how do um, physicians, surgeons, how do they understand more about their patients? Is it through genetic testing? And what can a patient do to make sure that um, they don't get caught in this cycle of you know, overprescription, et cetera? Exactly, and, and that's the big, the big problem. Um, we can do what's known as multimodal therapy. Multimodal therapy is using the body's own systems 
to um, respond differently to the pain medication and pain problem. So for example, we know that if you take 800 milligrams of an anti-inflammatory an hour before you get your wisdom teeth out, it'll decrease the pain potential by 85%. Um, a lot of surgeons worry about that, thinking that they're gonna get bleeding, but clearly an hour ahead of time, it's not gonna affect platelet function that much. And yet the gain is 85% pain reduction. So clearly giving someone anti-inflammatory as well as um, uh, food sources such as bromelain found in mango papaya pineapple. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story that you can always tell in people in Hollywood are about to get a plastic surgery because the month beforehand they're out with their girlfriends having um, mango salad and mango drinks and everything and we all know you know laughingly that the person's going to go on vacation and come back eight weeks later looking refreshed when they probably <laughs> had some plastic surgery so clearly you know there's a lot more to it that we can do just kind of being you know aware that it's a problem and the fact that you know we can we can attack it differently so interesting so for um, the OMF surgery community what would you recommend that you know how how should they move forward knowing what you've learned in this uh, research you've done well, I think the most important thing is to have the conversation with the patient and the family and have the doctor do it. Um, some other research that I did with uh, Dr. Pedro Franco, um, we did a large survey of over a thousand people and pretty much the data showed that the patient really yearns for the doctor to give the information. And then unfortunately we tend to have the nursing staff or the other staff in the office tell the patient what to do. But if it comes from the doctor themselves, the patient will believe it a little bit more and will follow the instructions. And a lot of it is just, again, an understanding that pain is a normal response to the surgery that you can't have a pain-free environment and that, you know, maybe having a little bit of discomfort, not pain per se, but discomfort is a normal outcome of surgery. And I think that that's what's happening in a lot of other countries, perhaps in Europe and some other areas, that it's an understanding that, yes, if you had surgery, you're gonna be uncomfortable for a little bit and that's to be expected. So I think it's just an overall philosophy of, of approaching patients differently and, and kind of that um, uh, working together spirit. Thank you, Dr. McCormick. This has been fascinating and um, really appreciate you sharing your, your research and um, your, your knowledge in this area with our community. And I hope we'll be hearing more from you on this in the future. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.